My name's Adam. I'm one of the elders that serves here at Grace Church, and we are finishing up a series that we've been going through this summer on Proverbs, right? Walking in wisdom based on Proverbs. And so our situation today, as we wrap up, one last topic is uh, about our obligation as believers. And for the most part, this message assumes that you are a believer in Christ. Uh, But what is our obligation to speak up on behalf of others? What does Scripture say about that? Uh, The complication is we're not good at it. (laughs) Um, We can speak up at the wrong time, the wrong way, or just not at all when we ought to. Even though the circumstances call for godly speech to serve the interest of those who cannot speak for themselves. Uh, The implication of that ineffectiveness, I think, is that we're not grounded in what the bedrock of Scripture has to say on this topic. Uh, uh, Our culture is just drowning in noise and in foolishness of so many voices uh, that claim to have the corner on what it means to protect the rights of other people. Uh, It's often a deceitful power grab to elevate the status of the speaker and has very little to do with the people that they would seek to protect or to help. Uh, So my position today is that that Scripture alone is the sole authority, the sole authority that governs when and why we speak up. And I'll, I'll tip my hand, it has nothing to do with personal power or exaltation. So the action I'd ask of you is, is just listen, right? Think about the last time that you, you spoke up for someone or that you didn't, good or bad, right? And ask yourself why, right? What was the motive? And then hold that motive up and evaluate it against the text, right? The scripture, let it speak, right? Let it inform, let it shape. And the benefit uh, to use a person, to us as a church, it could be really, really powerful if it becomes part of our culture and our habit to speak up scripturally, on behalf of others. Uh, Scripture says we will see the Lord uh, redeem people, transform lives, uh, build a community of broken and yet redeemed Christ-centered fellowship. And ultimately, he gets the glory out of that. What a privilege to be part of something like that. So we'll, uh, we'll look at it in three parts, okay? So who's it for? Why are, you know, who are we speaking up for? What's it for? And then who's it all about? Okay. Who's it for? What's it for? And who's it all about? So we'll start with who's it for. And if you got the sermon notes, I'd invite you to follow along. We're going to start in Proverbs, in Proverbs 31. Um, it's a famous passage. Um, most of Proverbs 31, we think about the godly wife. There, there is something different in the first part of the chapter in Proverbs 31 that we're going to start with today, uh, it's a catechism. It's it's kind of an old word that you may not be used to using, may not be part of our uh, vocabulary, but it is uh, a catechism that a mother teaches to her son who was a king. His name was Lemuel. And uh, catechism, the the idea, it was part of his upbringing. It was years of mom speaking into the life of her godly son, her godly king. And so for that reason, you can trust the advice. All right, mom has her son's best interest at heart, and um, I'm speculating a little bit, but you would think it's likely the king at some point when he was older decided to write it down, and so we have it, right? We have it here. So you, you hear mom yearning 
on behalf of her son in the first couple of verses, and depending on your translation, uh, it's essentially just, uh, listen, what, what are you doing? Right? That's kind of the, the tone of the first couple of verses. Uh, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him, this is in ver- chapter 31, verse 1, and now in verse 2, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? And she begins with a warning, right? Now that she's got his attention, listen up. She's got his attention, and she says, don't give your strength to women, your ways to those who would destroy kings. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Uh, She knows those temptations are coming, right? For a king, someone who has status and, and... maybe unlimited authority, right, in his culture, uh, it's going to attract women. It's going to attract hangers-on. It's going to provide for opportunities like indulgence and drunkenness. Who's going to stop the king from doing that? Even though he may have the right as king to do it, she says, don't. Don't. Right? It's not for you. And I think there's an obvious parallel right out of the gate If you think about uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, we're going to start thinking about Christ early, right? It's so obvious in some of these passages. Uh, But Paul says, uh, quoting a song, that Christ in his very nature was God. And at the same time, right, holding two thoughts in tandem, at the same time didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and exploited for his own position, right? All the right in the world and then some, right, in the heavenly realms, and he set those rights aside. Same principle. Okay? You have rights as king, Lemuel. Set them aside. And so there's a call right, for the believer to abstain. You very much have the right to do A, B, C, and D. But there's a call to abstain. Right? Whatever those rights may be. Uh, for the king, this is dangerous, right? Potentially indulging in alcohol, doing whatever it is where he squanders his strength, squanders his vigor. Uh, She says you're going to neglect the law, right? If you look at uh, verse 5, if kings drink, they may forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted, right? So the negligence and the indulgence of the king harms those under his rule. So you, you and I are not kings. We're not royalty, uh, at least not officially. We might, some of us <laughs> can walk around like that, right? But that's not us. Nonetheless, we have resources. We have influence. And what we do with our time, our energy, our resources, our rights, and if they go to excess, it will very much impact and potentially harm those around us, right? And so there's a watchfulness right out of the gate. Abstain, be mindful, don't indulge, don't ruin yourself because it matters to those around you. So the question isn't, what am I entitled to? What are my rights? Mom says. Uh, What should I pour myself into? Uh, The good news is that Lemuel's mom knows the answer to that question. Uh, And just as a a sidebar here, we don't know much about Lemuel. We don't know who he is for sure. Uh, But the word means for God. And so that tells us something about uh, mother, her hope for her kingly, godly son, you need to be about the things of God, right? That's his name for God. And so she says to him in verses 8 and 9, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, 
defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so there's some very important nuances, very important principles that we need to make sure we're clear on as we read this scripture. He's abstaining, and he's investing right, his strength and his resources uh, in others, and we're going to look at who they are. Um, she says, don't do this because you'll neglect the rights of those who um, are under your rule. And so she calls him to act, right? Act and deploy your resources. Invest yourself. Yes, it helps the poor, the needy, and the, the words here, uh, mute, speak up for those who are mute. They literally can't do it themselves. Uh, speak up for the destitute or the dying, right? So these are folks that really do lack the wherewithal. And she says, speak up on their behalf, lest their rights be diminished. And so it's not strictly about the individual. She's saying you need to speak and act in order to uphold the law, Lemuel. Right? So, yes, he's vested and he cares about these people who have needs. They can't speak. They're dying. But he's moved with strength. He's moved into service in order to uphold the law. And that's what benefits. Right? That's where the impact comes as he speaks up on their behalf and they get the blessing, they get the protection out of him upholding the law. Right. Strength and service respond to those in need, uh, whether you frame this under an Old Testament law, a New Testament law, uh, but that's the heart of the motive. And that's why you can um, accept, hopefully, a teaching like this from Scripture, right? because you have the authority of God in the Scriptures commanding us, teaching us to abstain of our rights and to give and to move on behalf of of others. Uh, I think there's another obvious parallel here, right? If you think about Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Our weakness, our need, we were mute, we were dying. Scripture says that we were dead, and the, the king of heaven had no compunction, no mandate, no obligation to do anything for us, and yet he abstained. He stepped out of heaven, and he gave himself while we were yet sinners, right? The perfect king, all the strength in the universe, abstaining, giving himself, right? Upholding the law of God, right? Sin is judged. The law is upheld. All of our weakness, all of our need, however obvious, physical, spiritual, all of those things are defined as such under the law. And so it's in that context, right, that we give and that we serve and that the king is called to do the same. Uh, the spiritual need is clear, right? It's obvious to those of us that are part of the church, that are familiar with these conversations. Uh, we speak up with the gospel for sure. The social need is, is also clear. I mean, that, that, that is very much in view here in this teaching for the king. Protect the rights of those in your community. Uh, we talked about several mission trips this morning in the first hour um, there's an organization called Street Reach in Memphis that uh, the youth and several of our adult sponsors went and worked with and served uh, for a week this summer. Uh, inner city, uh, the worst of the worst from what I understand. I wasn't there, but I've heard. Um, crack houses, prostitution, drugs, right, rough. Um, folk, kids that don't have parents, uh, parents that have lost kids, vice versa, right? Broken, broken, broken. And the the, uh, the individual that leads that, and I haven't met him, I've just heard the stories, but Reverend Tim and his wife 
made a choice many years ago to go live and set up shop in those neighborhoods. Uh, and they've been there for decades at this point. Uh, they've adopted several, they fostered several, they give people places to sleep that need them. Uh, they had the same rights that I do to live in a comfortable suburban community and they abstained. I didn't. They gave themselves to that ministry. Right? Uh, real needs, right? Kids need places to sleep. Uh, they run a school. And they're very clear to speak up about the name of Christ. And they have an organization now that uh, facilitate churches like ours coming to plug into that ministry and to serve. Right? Wonderful example. Real world example. Uh, the E3, E3 trips that were mentioned just very briefly. We speak the gospel on those trips and we speak into the lives um, physical and spiritual. Right? So that, that's why the medical team goes. That's why the veterinary team goes. If somebody's goat dies, children may die. There's nothing to eat. Right? So there's a tangible, spiritual combination right, that we meet, that we speak into, and that we target our efforts on those who are weak and are needy and they can't speak up for themselves. And we have one that we're on the front end of now with this relationship that we're going to establish with the uh, Afghani refugees in Richardson, right? We have the opportunity to be part of that, to speak into these needs. And th these folks don't know where to go, right? They're establishing themselves. There's real needs, real needs right now. But notice how this dynamic where the weak give themselves on behalf of the strong, it establishes a fabric within the community, right? It strengthens us. We enjoy serving together. It gives us connectivity with the folks who have the needs all around us. Right? And so the social fabric of the church in the community is strengthened, is established, right? And you begin to establish a rapport, some credibility, frankly, to speak in and to share the gospel with the folks that you're serving. Right? Notice how it goes together. All of that starts by identifying the weak and the dying. Those are the words in this passage in Proverbs 31. They're the beneficiaries. That's who it's for. When a Christ follower, a body of believers, identifies the need and decides to speak up and to act, that's who it's for. All right, so now we're going to look at, well, what is it for? And so if you want to flip with me to Isaiah 61, we're going to look at a few verses there at the beginning of that chapter. Isaiah 61. Proverbs makes it clear that we are speaking up on behalf of the mute and the dying but we have to answer the question, well, what are we speaking up for? What is it we're going to say? I'll give you the answer here in this passage, and then we'll walk through it. Uh, the purpose of what we're doing is to bring about human restoration so that God is glorified. Human restoration so that God is glorified. So if you go to chapter 61, you look in verse 1. Um, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Just to give you a little bit of context, way back when, when this was originally written, uh, the prophet is speaking to Jewish exiles who are in the middle of returning from captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem to reestablish and set up shop, right? rebuilding, reconstructing. Things are in ruins. right? It's a mess. No temple system, no sacrifice, no priest. All of it's getting built back up. Right? So he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. So the, what we see right out of the gate is that the Spirit of God is given to the servant in order to bring about restoration. So if you look in verse 1, the, the restoration is given exactly to the nature of the need. Okay? So uh, the poor or the meek, these are the folks who are just poor in spirit. Right? That's the concept. That's the idea. We're going to give them good news. Right? Something that sort of puts wind in their sails. Uh, the broken or the brokenhearted, well, we're going to bind it up. We're going to put the broken arm in a sling. Captives, well, those people, we're going to give freedom. And depending on your translation, uh, the blind are going to be given sight. Right? So in all four cases, the nature of the need and the brokenness is exactly the nature of the restoration. Right? It corresponds one to one. If you drop down for a minute to verse 3, I'm going to come back to 2. In verse 3, we're going to grant to those who mourn in Zion, right? These exiles who are returning, who are sad because things are in ruin. We're going to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Same sort of pattern there, right? Those who were mourning in an ashes, maybe ceremonial mourning, right? About everything that's been broken and destroyed. Ashes on the face, right? Ceremonial mourning, we're going to give them something beautiful, right? Clean them up, dust them off, give them something beautiful and joyful. Just flip it. And those that have a faint spirit are given an inclination to praise, right? The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That one's pretty cool. Uh, those, all of us get down. Some of us struggle with real clinical depression, right? There's a whole range of being down, we're going to move the needle, so to speak, in such a way that those people want to praise. That's a big change. Right? And so what, what's going to account for these changes? Right? We see the brokenness, the nature of the brokenness that we're speaking for. We know it's going to get turned on its head, 180 degrees, exchanging beauty or exchanging ashes for beauty. And the answer is in verse 2. Uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first part. The year of the Lord's favor is, um, the, the favor has to do with approval and acceptance. Like that, that's how you can translate the word. And so these folks are coming out of exile, something that God ordained in his sovereignty, and he is now changing their situation and saying, guess what, you have my approval you have my acceptance. He's establishing community with them. And I'm speculating a little bit, but this would have involved getting temple sacrifice, getting priests put back in place because that's the nature, that, that was the means by which the Jewish people were related and were reconciled to God. And he's saying, I'm going to give you back fellowship, acceptance, favor, and approval. It's, it's salvation. Very much salvation. Right? So step back Look at this just a little bit. The Lord empowers his anointed one with the spirit to grant acceptance and approval to those who can't do it for themselves. Who's that sound like? 
Right? This, this is salvation, and it's very much physical, spiritual, together. And if you play that all the way out to the end of our Christian faith, we're going to be reconciled. Our spirits are renewed. We have salvation now. The believer does, but resurrection's coming, right? Full physical, spiritual, total restoration. It's coming. The, the clincher here, though, is as good as that is, right? That's why everything is flipping upside down, why restoration is coming for these people. Uh, it goes deeper. Like, well, how could it go deeper? But it does. Um, if you look in verse 3, um, second half of verse 3, so all of that happens, all the restoration happens, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, here's the clincher, that he may be glorified. All right, so uh, weeping willows, if I can make kind of a corny parallel, are turned into towering oaks of righteousness. And the only way that that can happen, Scripture tells us, is because the Lord planted the oak. And so you, you look back and you see the one who was mourning, who's now praising, right? The one who was broken is now healed, and you say, well, how did that happen? And, and, you know, this is an interesting detail, but guess what? It says these people may be called oaks of righteousness. Well, if they're called, that means somebody else sees them to make that comment. Right? You're an oak of righteousness. How did that happen? That's the idea. Right? The transformation is so complete that you say, well, the only way that that could happen is that the Lord planted that individual. Right, if the change is that profound in the people, right, what must the nature be of the one who did it? Right, so we, we speak, right, we bring restoration, we bring the message of restoration and of uh, healing, right, of upholding needs, to see this work brought about, right? to see how beauty, how beautiful it is, that, that's the word, right? depending on the uh, interpretation. So you say either that the glory of the Lord is displayed or his beauty is displayed, it's the same idea, right? Same, both words, both concepts go together, that because you see what happens to the people, you can't help but talk to each other about, man, the Lord is glorious. Have you seen what he did with her? Did you see the change in that family? Gosh, the Lord's beautiful. That's all we can talk about. All right, so that's the purpose of speaking up. Right? We find the weak, we find the perishing, we find those who have real needs. We speak into it to bring about restoration. We see restoration happen. We step back and say, golly, look at that. God is good. That's why we do it. That's the call. That's why we join with Street Reach. That's why we join with For the Nations. That's why we go on mission with E3, is to see that happen. Right? Because once you taste and see that the Lord is good, it just sort of wells up. It becomes part of your speech, part of your conversation. Let me tell you what the Lord has done. 
Let me tell you what he can do. Let me tell you about your need for him. If I say it a little bit differently, it's because we're first called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, strength and mind. And when that happens, right, you can't help but love the people around you. Now, there's something very important, I think, culturally for us to grab hold of as we see this. If you drop down and you look at verse 10, 61 verse 10, this is the servant speaking again. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. So the individual bringing the message, speaking up on behalf of others, giving himself on behalf of others, exults, right? Can't stop praising God. He's not diminished as a result of his service on behalf of others. That's important in our culture. That's how you distinguish Christ-centered, God-centered service on behalf of others from some of what we hear about today because it's not I win, you lose, or for you to win, I lose, right? But I exult to see God restore people. And so the mark of real Christian service, real social work, the way the scriptures define it, is both the one who is served and protected and the one doing the service and protection, they both flourish. Right? It doesn't lead to oppression. That's distinct. Right? That stands out. That's different than sort of the copycats that come from other places with other motives. So who's it all about? And this one's obvious. We've identified who we're speaking up for, what it is that we're saying, right? the purpose. Now, who's it all about? So if you'll flip with me now to Luke 4. This is the passage that was read, quoting the one we've just studied. So we know we're serving the needy and the dying. We know the purpose is to bring about restoration and glory right, for God. Well, who's all that about? Some of the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament are hard to see. This one's not. This one's obvious. Uh, we know that Christ is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the Lord's anointed, of the Lord's servant, In Isaiah 61, how do we know it? Well, he told us. (laughs) That part's easy. We're going to read those words. He said, guess what? It's me. It's me. So in Luke 4, start in verse 14, there's just all sorts of details in this passage. We'll pick out the good ones. Jesus returned. That that, that sounds like there's bad ones. There's not bad ones. (laughs) We only have time for some. They're all good, just in case you're wondering. So Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. When it says he returned, he was just out in the wilderness with a temptation. And both before and after the temptation occurred, Scripture says that Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So he's coming out of that experience right now, filled with the Holy Spirit, engaging in ministry in Galilee. And then in verse uh, 16, is that 16 or 18? 16. He comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, 
he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written and, and he reads the passage that we just studied. We're going to read it again. Um, but here are the details. These are the things that are fun. Um, I'm going to start with this one, verse 17. I love the passive voice in this verse. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to Christ to stand up and read this passage and to say, I am the Lord's anointed. Who, who handed it to him? There are a bunch of scrolls in the synagogue. You had them for the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch. You had them for the prophets. You had them for the Psalms. There's lots of different ones. You didn't have a central repository of all of it in one place. You had to pick. Well, who picked this one? And we know what's about to happen. Prophecy is about to be fulfilled in their midst. God's the author and the perfecter of prophecy. I don't think it's a stretch to say God orchestrated somebody handing Christ this passage today. Not cool. Right. He was handed the scroll of Isaiah. So scrolls are big and thick. And so the scripture says he unrolled it. And it takes a while. And it's kind of silent and people are watching him. Where's he going? What's he reading, right? There's intent in this, right? So you have the providence of God at work in the selection of Isaiah. You have the very Son of God incarnate in flesh, taking his time, letting the tension build, finding this passage. And the scripture says that the eyes of everyone were fixed on him in verse 20. There's some drama, frankly, in the moment. And, and what he says to them in verse 20, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Saying very clearly to this Jewish audience, he personally is responsible for bringing about physical restoration, spiritual resurrection, spiritual restoration, the fullness of salvation, body and soul, it's me. He tells them, what a claim, what a claim. So let's look at the evidence. Uh, if you have the notes, and guys, if you'll put this one on the screen. Um, so he's going to read this passage that we've studied, and let's look at the evidence for it. So he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. Have we seen the spirit of the Lord on Christ? Right. In his baptism, scripture says, the spirit descended in bodily form, the dove sat on him, on his shoulder. The Spirit came down before the temptation, after the temptation, and gave him power. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. To proclaim good news to the poor and the meek. If you, and these are just my examples. There are others. But think about his encounter with a woman at the well, Samaritan woman. Uh, if you read that, she had some inkling, some desire to hear about the ability to worship and connect with God. And she said, but that's in Jerusalem, and I can't go, and I'm a Samaritan. And he said, guess what? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming and actually has come. And this Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth, i.e. you. That's good news. Right? She was shut out. 
She was marginalized. That was her perception. And Christ says to her, here's some good news. You have access to the Father. Christ reads and says, I've come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And he said very clearly to his Jewish antagonists several times, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. I have the authority to do that. I've come to give sight to the blind. He healed blind Bartimaeus. He healed another blind guy at the pool of Siloam. To set the oppressed free, there was a demon-possessed man right, in a graveyard. And he set that man free. That's freedom. I mean, that was real, literal oppression. That guy's freed. So we, we see just this wholeness, right, this integrity. When I, when I say integrity, this wholeness, this completeness of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he healed people physically. Uh, he spoke of, for those who couldn't speak for themselves, like the woman that was caught in adultery. She was in a bind. She really didn't have anything to say and defend herself. He spoke up on her behalf. Right? There were signs attesting to who he is, because he is the anointed one, to use the language of Isaiah the Messiah, the chosen of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the, the sin of our world, you and me. He meets our most fundamental need, right, which is reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God, and he does that. And so if you read the rest of the Gospels, Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and atoning work for the believers, for you and me, exactly parallels and one-ups the reinstitution of the sacrificial system and the priest, right? It's a better sacrifice. He's a better priest than what they had. Right? Do you see this just awesome parallel? And, and again, it's obvious because he said, yeah, this, it's me. It's, so I mean, I'm kind of picking out the details, but just don't miss the obvious point. Christ said, it's, it's me. So as disciples, you and I, right, we have this call to speak up for the weak and the needy, to point them to Christ. Because of Christ, for Christ, it's all about Christ. Soup kitchens are fine. People are going to get hungry again, right? But if the soup kitchen becomes an avenue of conversation where you share Christ, well, well then you're sort of coming online with a point of service. Let me give you a few... Well, let me take back. So... Uh, honesty here, as I've been studying and reading this passage, the question that keeps coming in the back of my mind is, well, how much is enough? Because this is awkward. Um, I'm looking for a box to check to sort of get to the point where my conscience doesn't nag me anymore. A couple of you guys are laughing, right? Yeah. Um, but well, first of all, we're all in good company, but these questions have been asked of Christ, more or less, the same questions. Uh, Jesus was asked, how many times do I have to forgive? And, and sort of, I'm editorializing, do you know how obnoxious and undeserving that guy is that you're asking me to forgive again? How about seven times? That's a lot. How about seven times? That's a lot. Right? The other question, I, I, I know, yeah, yeah, I, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Get it. Totally agreed, on board with that. But here's a question, who's my neighbor? Because that means somebody else is not, and I, I, I need to know. Like, I'm gonna walk by that guy because he's not my neighbor. So let, let's just put him in a box 
and figure out who's my neighbor and who's not, and then it's manageable. Right? Sort of the same question here. Well, who do I have to speak up on or on the behalf of? How often should I do it? It's the same question. Okay? So we have that question. We're looking for limits. And so let me just offer up what I think are biblical principles on this to think through. So um, as a redeemed Christian, you and I have been forgiven a debt we couldn't begin to repay. No doubt about that, right? But Scripture doesn't leave us in guilt, in just wallowing in, gee, I can never repay it. What do I do? That, that's not the fullness and the complete message. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's not because of you or me. That's because of the sufficiency of the work itself. No condemnation. Right? But we grow. We grow in our understanding of how great our need is. Right? The need isn't really changing, it's just we're understanding more of it. That's the nature of sanctification. We understand how incredibly good and kind Christ is. Right? The older saints in the room, they can attest to this. Right? He seems gentler, kindler, holier, more attractive than he did years ago. And either he changed... Or maybe we changed, right? And, and so we become convinced of the fact of how worthy he is to be obeyed. Right? How worthy he is of our worship. The songs that we sing, the acts that we commit, the speech that we engage in, it's all wrapped up in worship. We become convinced of that as we get to know him. That's the renewal, right? That's the kind of renewal that takes place here and here, right? Heart and mind, and that's what leads us. That's the motivation. Frankly, that will last longer than guilt, right? That will last longer than willpower because you are being pulled by your Savior, right? By your attraction for who He is. Not pushed, not just sort of because you're, you know, bucking up, but you're being led by your king, empowered by his spirit, right? It takes place here first. And so, that we, and we have some examples of this. So think about Zacchaeus. Once he encountered Christ, we don't know what the full conversation was. What did he do? I, I, I'm giving back four times of everything that I took, right? Nobody coerced that out of him. That's because he encountered Christ and he said, that's what I'm going to do. Matthew, the disciple, had an affluent job, and he'd more or less betrayed his own culture to take that job, and he left it, and he went back to trying to persuade the people he betrayed that Jesus is the Messiah. Do you think he was guilted into it? Right? We don't do that kind of thing based on solely man-made guilt. Right? We do it because God transforms our heart through repentance and through obedience and through sanctification and growth because we understand who he is. A couple more examples. Uh, Peter left a very humble fishing trade. And we see him a little bit later in Acts standing up in front of the Sanhedrin who are saying, stop talking about Jesus. And he said, you know, you make the decision. Is it better to obey God or is it better to obey man? I can't stop talking about the one that I've seen. Nobody's guilting him into that. Does that sound like guilt to you? Does that sound like oppression? 
right? It's all he can do because of Christ. Uh, Paul gave his life, tradition says, for the one that he used to persecute and, and murdered disciples, right? Flipped on its head because of who he came to know as a savior and as king. That's the kind of thing that scripture has in mind when it says that God loves a cheerful giver. I read that verse as a kid thinking, so I have to smile when I give? Like, <laughs> it wasn't a happy feeling when I put my money in the offering plate as a kid. Right? It was training wheels. I'm glad my parents nudged me. But the cheerfulness that Scripture talks about, man, it's deep. Right? It's deep. We can't get over who Christ is. That's the vision of Scripture. And that's why when, when you look around at some of the older saints in the room who have come to know Christ, it's easy for them. They enjoy giving, you know, in contrast to my 12-year-old self that, like, I just hope my parents didn't ask and remind me to bring my money to church. Right? But because of their conviction and their persuasion and their intimacy with Christ, they just can't get over him. And they like to give. They like to speak. They like to serve because it's all about him. That makes sense. So start there. Spend some time every day reflecting on the glory and the beauty of Christ. And, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest something. This is not scriptural. Block out an hour, 15 and 20 minutes. Just it, given who we're talking about, 15 or 20 minutes probably won't do. Right? Block out some time. And as you get to know the Christ of the Gospels, right, you begin kind of living through these scenes. You take the time to kind of think. It's sort of the mixture between study and prayer, right? If you can kind of put those two things together as you read the Scripture for an extended period of time, it's sort of like spiritual osmosis. And so you begin to talk, right? You begin to pray with Christ. And conversations like, I, I used to be addicted to pornography, to alcohol, to anger. Now I desire accountability, help, brotherhood, brothers and sisters to get me out of that so that I know the one who set me free. Right? Very practical changes because my affections change to leave the addiction. And it can take time. Right? I used to be obsessed with money. But because I know who he is, it's joyful to give, to serve, to engage. I used to hold on to grudges and bitterness because we're pretty good at offending one another and even better at holding on to it. That comes naturally. Something strange happens. I, I, I don't know if I like them, but I love them. And that's weird. Right? But what accounts for that kind of change? Christ, the Holy Spirit changes your heart and your mind. So you can say it in different ways, but fundamentally, we will come to know the reality of the fact that we are the weak one, we are the mute one, we are the dead one. He spoke up for us. Right? Christ loved me. He gave himself for me. Even more, he continues to give himself freely to me. 
each day. Right? He's our life. He's our life. So, by His grace, you will begin, if you do this, you will begin to tap into the power of the Spirit as you learn to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That'll change your conversation. That'll change the things that you care about. You may find yourself speaking up on behalf of your neighbor. You might even find it hard not to. Right? May God make it so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the, uh, the captain and king of our souls, those of us that you've redeemed. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you and all of your goodness and all of your beauty and just never get over the fact of how good and how beautiful and how right you are and just allow you to change us, to make us a little bit more like yourself and to speak your name to love our neighbor because you've changed us and because you're worthy of that kind of response and more. It's in Christ's name, amen.